excited to be with you today. Our passage from the Gospels is in John 2, verses 13 through 22. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. On June 27th, 2015, Bree Newsom, a South Carolina activist, performed a symbolic act of protest that would inspire people for years to come. Bree approached the South Carolina State House, scaled a 30-foot tall flagpole, and ripped down the Confederate flag, flag that hung there. In the name of Jesus, she said, this flag has to come down. You come against me with hatred, oppression, and violence, Newsom shouted with the flag in her hand. I come against you in the name of God. This flag comes down today. Newsom's powerful public display that day was both a lament and a cry for justice. She climbed the flagpole just weeks after Dylan Roof gunned down nine parishioners at Charleston's Emanuel AME Church. The Confederate flag was a unifying symbol for white supremacists like Dylan Roof. And Bree knew that its continued presence at the seat of government needed to come to an end. Bree's passionate demonstration set into motion important changes. Soon after, Governor Nikki Haley signed a bill, bill removing the flag from the State House grounds permanently. And in the years following, many more people participated in protests to fight against the brutality, racism, and oppression that continues to plague South Carolina and our entire country today. Symbolic acts have great power. In our passage today, Jesus performs a symbolic act that carries great significance in the gospel story. He clears the temple in Jerusalem driving out the animal sellers and the money changers. It is a dramatic moment that comes at the very end of Jesus's ministry during his last week in Jerusalem. Or does it? If you flip to this passage in the Gospel of John, you would notice that it is located in chapter two, at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, not the end. So which is it? Did this symbolic act come at the beginning or the end of Jesus's ministry? 
It seems that before we can explore the significance of Jesus's action in the temple, we need to take care of some preliminary issues. Although each of our canonical gospels is unique in its own way, John stands out among the gospels for its distinct structure and features. The three synoptic gospels follow the same timeline as they tell the story of Jesus's life, probably because Matthew and Luke use Mark as a source. John's timeline, however, deviates from theirs quite drastically. John describes an almost three-year ministry for Jesus, while the synoptics narrate the story in what seems like one year. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see Jesus in Jerusalem only once when he enters Jerusalem on a donkey and clears the temple. Jesus visits Jerusalem multiple times, however, in John's gospel. The clearing of the temple in John 2 occurs during one of these visits. Though Johannine Jesus then drives out the animals and overturns tables in the temple right after his first miracle at the wedding at Cana, while the synoptic Jesus does it during the week that culminates in his death. The apparent contradiction between the temple clearing in the synoptics and the one in John has troubled many a Christian. Those who are committed to the inerrancy of scripture smooth out the contradiction by insisting that Jesus cleared the temple twice, once in the beginning of his ministry, as we see in John, and once at the end, as we see in the synoptics. But there's really no need for us to work that hard to eradicate timeline discrepancies. In ancient historical writings, reporting chronology accurately was not of primary concern. Instead, historians and biographers like the gospel writers were much more interested in reporting the character of their subject. They were quite content toying with timelines in order to communicate deeper truths about a person's character. So it is likely that the author of John's gospel is doing just that. He narrates this climactic story near the beginning of the gospel to give his readers insight into Jesus's character and perhaps to generate plot tension and foreshadow later events in the Jesus story. John, you see, is not a mere reporter. He is a master storyteller. So when we encounter this episode in John 2, it is not helpful for us to ask, so when did the clearing of the temple really happen? That is a contemporary question forced on an ancient text. It is much more appropriate for us to wonder, why did John tell this story here? What is the author trying to say by his early placement of this event? These questions rather than those of chronology or historicity, are the ones that will guide our study today. I know that your pastor likes to nerd out on scholarly ways to read the Hebrew Bible. While I, being a New Testament gal, favor nerding out reading the Gospels. One of my favorite ways to interpret the Gospels is to observe the differences between, between the accounts in order to understand the author's themes and emphases. Scholars call this redaction criticism, and I find that it yields profound results. So I want to try it with you on this story. John's account of the clearing of the temple shares several plot characteristics with the synoptic accounts. 
in all the gospels, we see Jesus entering the temple at the time of a Passover, uh, Jesus driving out animals and the people selling animals from the temple court, and Jesus overturning the tables of the money changers. However, that is where the similarities end. John's account differs in its timing, as we have discussed, but it also differs in its wording and emphases. For example, Jesus' words about the temple in the Synoptic Gospels are a quotation from two different Hebrew prophets. My house shall be called a house of prayer, from Isaiah 56, 7, and you are making it a den of robbers, which is from Jeremiah 7, 11. Here in John 2, Jesus utters words about the temple, but they are not direct quotes from the scriptures. Take these things out of here, Jesus says in John 2, 16. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. The main thrust is similar. The people have turned the temple courts into an emporium. But the words take the narratives in different directions. When the synoptic authors use the prophetic quotes that they do, they are emphasizing the corruption of the temple. The first quote about the house of prayer comes from Isaiah 56, and it highlights the exclusionary practices of the temple. In Isaiah 56, the prophet speaks of how the temple would be a house of prayer for all the nations, how God will gather outsiders like eunuchs and foreigners and give them sanctuary and acceptance in God's house. When Jesus says the temple is more like a den of robbers than a house of prayer, he is criticizing the leaders and the structure of the temple. They have not created a house of prayer and refuge for the outsider. No, the business of the temple benefits the people it has always benefited, the religious leaders and those pursuing wealth. Which brings us to the second synoptic quote about the den of robbers. This one comes from the famous temple sermon in Jeremiah 7. Like Jeremiah who announces God's judgment on Israel's corrupt practices, Jesus is calling out his contemporaries for corrupting God's house with their greed. These two prophetic quotes on Jesus's lips imply harsh judgment on the temple leaders and their practices. But Jesus does not quote these verses in John. In fact, John's story focuses more on Jesus's actions than his words. John describes the scene in much more detail than the synoptics, articulating what Jesus does in a meticulous way. Notice the difference between Luke's clearing of the temple and John's. Luke is the most concise of the synoptics in this account. It reads, then he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling things there. That's it. <laughs> That's the extent of the narrative description in Luke. In John, we read this. He found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. In John, Jesus is not like Jeremiah, railing against the people in front of the temple. He's like Ezekiel, performing a dramatic sign act, a prophetic act. You may recall some of the bizarre sign acts from the prophetic book of Ezekiel. Uh, in Ezekiel 5, there is a detailed description of God telling Ezekiel to cut his hair and shave his beard. 
divide that hair, weigh it, and then burn part of it and scatter another part of it. Bizarre indeed. But all of it was a prophetic act, a dramatic representation of what was going to happen to Jerusalem in the near future. John then puts emphasis on Jesus's prophetic actions more than his words and makes less of a connection to the corrupt practices of the temple than the synoptic accounts do. But in John's account, the question remains, what is the purpose of Jesus's prophetic act if not to call out the practices in the temple? The second half of the passage provides us a clue. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, this temple has been construct under construction for 46 years and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. They believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Here, the focus of the story narrows even more closely on Jesus while the temple practices fade from view. The narrator uses an omniscient perspective to tell the audience what the disciples were thinking about Jesus' sign act. The quote that the disciples remember is from Psalm 69 about a righteous sufferer whose zeal for God's house makes him despised. This suffering psalmist feels like a foreigner in his own family and many enemies gather against him. With this quotation, John is no longer talking about the temple. He's talking about the character and experience of Jesus. The exchange that happens next between Jesus and the Jewish leaders in the temple further deepens the differences between John and the synoptics. John reports the reaction to Jesus' actions in the temple in an anticlimactic way compared to the other gospels. At the end of Mark's clearing of the temple, it says, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began to look for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Here in John, they do not seem enraged. What sign can you show us for doing this, they say. Almost as if they recognize that Jesus has just performed a prophetic act and they need more illumination. Well, Jesus' explanation is cryptic. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jewish questioners take Jesus rather literally, arguing that the temple building took 46 years to raise. No one could possibly do it in three days. And here would be the perfect place for John's story to line up with the synoptics accounts. Mark and Matthew especially construct their stories to show that Jesus' action in the temple foreshadowed the destruction of the temple that would come from the Romans in the year 70. John could connect Jesus' words to the temple destruction too, but he doesn't. Instead, John's narrator, who often intrudes on the story with dramatic asides, says this, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. John is definitely not talking about the construction and destruction of buildings now. John is foreshadowing Jesus's death and resurrection by comparing his body to the temple. It is not a shocking twist. Readers of John's gospel have already been introduced to the concept of Jesus's body as a temple. 
In the prologue of John, in John 1:14, we read, And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. The words in this poetic introduction paint a picture of Jesus as the tabernacle, the place where the glory of God resided in the wilderness. Jesus' incarnation, John implies, is like God's presence coming to dwell among us in the human body of Jesus. The tabernacle and then the temple may have been the place where God's glory used to live, but now people could encounter God's presence in the walking talking, bleeding, suffering body of Jesus. It is beautiful and meaningful imagery. But it would have been quite difficult for the Jewish contemporaries of Jesus to comprehend. Not only did the Jewish worshipers in the temple misunderstand him, but it seems the disciples do too. Perhaps that is why John ends this passage with another omniscient comment about the disciples. In verse 22, After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. It seems that at the time when Jesus cleared the temple, no one would have understood what his words and actions, as reported in John, could mean. But eventually, they would understand, and they would interpret those actions for their own context and their own lives as Jesus' followers. And this perhaps, is the lasting power of a prophetic act. Jesus' actions in the temple were dramatic, attention-grabbing, but the meaning that John infused into that scene was even more dramatic, multi-layered, enduring, and deeply theological. He takes us on a journey backward and forward in time, John connects Jesus' actions in the temple to the prophetic acts of the great prophets of Israel so that his audience might understand that just as God spoke through the prophets, so God speaks through Jesus and through the gospel story. Although the story grounds us in the life and experience of Jesus, the narrator also tells us what the disciples would later come to believe. We are zipped into the future and given a glimpse of the beginning of the Jesus movement. Then the narrator's comment, he was speaking of the temple of his body, establishes that the story is really about Jesus's death and resurrection rather than the temple building itself. John's storytelling here is masterful, giving us layers of meaning and theological insight as well. Moving the clearing of the temple to the beginning of Jesus's ministry rather than leaving it at the end makes for an intensely gripping story. As we read, we can feel the irony when people refuse to believe in Jesus or when they misinterpret his teachings. Jesus is the temple we've learned already, the presence and glory of God living among them. And so many of them cannot recognize it. We feel frustration as the religious authorities oppose Jesus, plot against Jesus, and eventually have him arrested. Have they misunderstood the character of God so completely that they cannot see his mercy and love in the ministry of Jesus? We feel anticipation. That anticipation of Jesus' demise on the cross, 
along with the building hope of his resurrection. With every story we read in John and every action Jesus has with people, we feel dread mixed with excitement as we wait for Jesus's body, the temple, to be destroyed and raised again in victory. The prophetic act that Jesus performs in the temple displays more than symbolic power. It carries theological power. Readers of John catch an enduring glimpse of the character of God in Jesus's words and actions. John's storytelling helps us understand that the Jesus who performs miraculous signs and teaches great truth is also the Jesus of sacrificial love who will suffer and die and raise up new hope in his body. God is a God of miracles and wisdom who also takes on finitude, suffering and death to make all things new for us. We hold this anticipatory truth inside of us every time we read John's gospel because the author has woven it into his narrative. John wants us to feel the significance of Jesus' death and resurrection with every page we turn after the clearing of the temple. There is indeed power, symbolic and theological power in this prophetic act of Jesus. The question I have for us today as 21st century readers of this first century story is this. What might John's story about Jesus's prophetic act show us? I think it shows us that we too can become like the author of John's gospel. John interpreted Jesus's act in the temple in a different way than the synoptic authors did. And his powerful retelling deepened the significance of that act. Jesus' prophetic act in Matthew, Mark, and Luke was a condemnation of the temple practices. In John, it was a revelation of God's character and presence that would reverberate throughout the gospel and into history. The way John told Jesus' story matters. We can be like the author of John and reveal God's character and presence when we can. We can recognize prophetic acts when we see them, participate in prophetic acts when we can, and proclaim the power of those prophetic acts to reveal the character of God in our world. The way we tell stories matters. Let's return to Brie Newsom and her removal of the Confederate flag. Brie did not just provide a response of protest when she scaled that flagpole. She performed a powerful prophetic act. She demonstrated God's opposition to racism and hatred. Her act revealed the character of God. In her protest, we see the God of the Bible, the God who hears the voices of the oppressed and sends representatives to rescue them. I only learned about Bree's Meaningful Sign Act months ago when I read a book about Confederate monuments, but I should have known about it before that. We have not always been faithful storytellers about the prophetic acts that happen around us every day, but that is where John can help us. One way that we can participate in the great prophetic acts of our time is to retell them with a theological lens like John does. 
Some people might see Bree's act as a public stunt or a social gesture that affected some change, but ultimately had little effect on the racism in our world. But we should recognize that Bree's act was much more than that, that it was a prophetic, a symbolic act that denounced the evils of racism and declared the character and priorities of God in our world. And we can be like John. We can tell the story of prophetic acts like Bree's in ways that multiply their power in our society. During this season of Lent, may God give us the courage to recognize prophetic acts and to amplify their power toward change in this world. Amen. Amen.